Hey there, we're the West Slot Pirates and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Well guys, we are halfway through May. It is officially a hundred days uh, till college football is back. Um, I, I Not that I'm counting because I'm I absolutely am counting. Um, but it is kind of, you know, th- this dead period, you know, we, a little bit far away from starting our, our summer previews. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of need to talk a little football. I mean, we've been sort of diving around that for, you know, past few weeks. Obviously the NFL draft, um, you know, basketball before that, but, I, I need I need to talk some football. So we, I'm, we, we were thinking about not potting this week, and then we were all kind of like, eh. Well, we had let's, let's talk about football. Well, luckily for us, right, a couple other major sources were also thinking about Northwestern football, and that gave us like the pivot point that we need, right? Our our, our uh, Northwestern's finest, Stu Mandel, uh, clearly had the cats at least a little bit on his mind, and uh, and the athletic too. So that was. Just a vehicle for us to get exactly where we wanted to go, which is having a, a general discussion about NU football. So let, let, let's start with uh, with Stu. Um, you know, Stu Mandel put out at, at the beginning of May his way too early top twenty five. Um, you know, the end of spring practice kind of cued that, and you know, kind of taking a look around uh, the state of the college football landscape. Um, obviously, this is ridiculously early but i think you know just kind of scrolling through uh you know not a ton of surprises uh he's got alabama one clemson two ohio state wisconsin three four washington five georgia six michigan state seven tcu eight miami nine and michigan ten um and then it goes on from there um of that top ten what sort of is uh you know what? What's your takeaway? I mean, you're looking at four Big Ten teams there in the top ten. That seems a bit optimistic to me. I agree. And again, anyone who's been listening to the pod knows that it's like it's it's like the uh, I'm running back the Johnny Manziel. It's like I I'm so deep in that I can't just like stop digging. I've just got to go. I, Dude, I'll just you, keep you, digging. You got you got to learn that there is no such thing as sunk cost, man. Yeah, I, 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 if I dig far enough, I'll come out the other side. That's what I'm. But the, the reason I say that is uh, not unlike my riding of of Johnny Menzel into the ground. Um, I will go ahead and own that from the very beginning. I talked about that last season, the bottom could potentially fall out on Michigan State, and instead, the exact opposite happened. But I still look at this team, and they're you know, Stu's got him seventh in the nation. And I'm like, this team was lucky to win 10 games last year. Uh, Lewerke is, can get a heck of a lot done, but I, I still am like seventh to me for a team that was lucky to get where they got last year. I just don't see it. So I don't know. That's, that's the one that jumps out to me. I completely agree. I think they've got a dynamic t- talent in uh, Felton Davis at wideout. And, but other than that, like, uh, you feel good about LJ Scott? coming back at running back and th- their their defense has been you know i i, I honestly I, I feel like it's dropped off since narduzzi left and i and i feel like that's only going to continue 
to, I don't know, revert to the mean. I just, I couldn't agree more, John. I think they got totally lucky last year. They won two crazy weather games against Michigan and Ohio State. And I just think they have no business in this top ten. Um, the other one, the other one for me is Ohio State at three. Just feels, uh, I mean, it doesn't feel wrong, and that I certainly think they could end up there. I just think, to, I, I think to assume that everything will be fine moving on from the JT Barrett era, and with all the losses in their secondary, that they're not gonna gonna drop a game early. Now, I don't know what their schedule looks like. Maybe they don't play anybody till November, but it just probably feel, not. But it just feels. Um, a little, a little aggressive. Uh, I, I, I feel a bit better about Wisconsin. Uh, definitely feel better about Washington. There at number five, and then um, I will say I think I think Michigan deserves to be in in the top ten, namely just because their defense is going to be so good. Uh, they broke in new weapons uh, across the board on offense last year, and then Shea Patterson's kind of the deal the deal changer there, right? Assuming they can keep him uh, in one piece. Yeah, probably offensive line. Yeah, well, yeah. good point. And and he's the big question mark too. And I mean, he was he's the real deal for sure. But uh, you know, I mean, it, not not to do our pivot yet. But uh, we share in common with Michigan that there's you know one big question mark, and it's at the quarterback position. But uh, before we get there, the other team that jumps out to me, if you just look at the way, where they're ranked in Stu's list, uh, Georgia to me should be higher. I know that yeah. that they're replacing Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle and Roquan Smith. And those are three big names. But this team has been recruiting at an absolutely insane level for several years now. And they're just stacked. They're basically where Clemson was like last year or the year before. Like Georgia's loaded with talent. And their starting quarterback, who's amazing, is only a sophomore. So, um, I mean, if it was me, I'd probably have them three ahead of Ohio State. Um you know, I, was, I think that's a great call, and yeah. I think th- those those positions you mentioned, running back, linebacker, I feel like those are more plug and play in college than they've ever been. Um, if you've got the recruiting uh, bandwidth, which which Georgia certainly does, whereas replacing a quarterback or you know a wide receiver that really dictated matchups um, uh, and 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 forced defenses to do things differently when they played you in, in previous years, or or you know a defensive end that forced offenses to to game plan around them. I just I I, I think linebackers and, and running backs, I, you you can you can easily get by replacing what Georgia needs to replace given the talent that they've got behind those guys. Another thing at the at the quarterback spot for Georgia, you got uh, Justin Fields, the number one quarterback out of high school, who's who's there. So if if Jake Fromm stumbles at and, all and you could run that back at just about every position george has so many, <laughs> they have so many guys who are awesome who are not gonna play next year it's crazy uh, uh scrolling down the list a little bit um you know, kind of going to the you know the rest of the top 25 you got oklahoma auburn central oh, florida so, so can i make a just a just jump in with a quick comment yeah if you're gonna put oklahoma at 11 given their losses and UCF at thirteen, given that Scott Frost is no longer there, to me those are those are rep, like reputation picks. But you've knocked them down quite a few pegs. Why does Ohio State not get the same treatment with all the turnover that they had? I, I think because you know, Ohio State has shown year in and year out that you know they're they don't take the big step back you know they they turn over a lot of great players i mean they put a lot of people into the nfl um you know they're constant like 
their recruiting has been so good for so long. Their talent is so good for so long. And yet they can, they're consistently replacing pieces and it don't, they don't seem to be skipping a beat. I don't know if you can say the same thing about Oklahoma. And you definitely can't say the same thing about central Florida. It's funny, you know, even farther down the list, I, I look at two schools back to back where it's like Stanford and Penn state where it's like Penn state, like, would they be like, is, I don't know, like was Saquon Barkley so good that his, just him leaving knocks them down a bunch of pegs. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, if you liked Penn State last year, to me, they still have a lot of those pieces, like starting with McSorley. Um, and Stanford, even more so, Stanford basically brings everybody back. So, you know, that's another really, really good team that I kind of feel like could be a little bit higher. Like, to me, it's like if you're making me pick between Stanford and Michigan State, I just don't see a world where Michigan State is 7th and Stanford's way down at 15th. Like, I think Stanford's got a better football team um, pretty much across the board. So, um but but yeah no I I agree. I would say just about everyone everyone numbers like eleven through eighteen over uh, Michigan State. You know what's an interesting one, and and I'll be honest, I only zeroed in this, on this because of the NFL draft. But I guess I I wasn't processing during the college football season that one half of Notre Dame's offensive line was absolutely ludicrously good. Yeah. Um, and those guys are gone. And it, and that's kind of like something that it's the exact kind of thing that tends to get lost in the shuffle because people tend to talk about the sexy positions and replacing quarterbacks and running backs, et cetera. But like you're talking about Notre Dame could count on running behind a, just an NFL blue chip side of their offensive line. And now those guys are gone. And I'm sure they have good um, offensive linemen, you know, coming in to replace them. But you have to assume it's still going to be a pretty big drop off. So that's it's an interesting uh, an interesting thing to focus on, and yeah, a, bi- a big question mark with Notre Dame. You know uh, the Brandon Wimbush uh, situation. You know he, you know had all the potential in the world, and he came in and was you know he ran the ball great, but he never quite figured out how to throw the ball. And you know he, he's now being battled uh, in you know by Ian Book. So you know it, part of me kind of wishes that you know we saw Notre Dame early in the season while there were still question marks there. Um, I, I would imagine when, when they come to town in November, uh, that'll gonna, all, like, their quarterback situation will settle down. You're going to have a bunch of young guys buckling under the crippling pressure of a potential three-game losing streak to Northwestern. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like Notre Dame often um, runs out of steam late in the season, right? Like I like. I feel like that's happened to them several years in the past. We'll see that 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 team's a lot a lot of question marks there because they bring back just about everybody else, um, but those two old linemen. So they're running back. Who was the running back? Oh yeah, uh, Josh Adams. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm wrong. Josh Adams. Good point, Sam. He's he's gone. West Virginia is another one that jumps out to me only because mainly because of the Greer family. I was just going to say, you've been talking about the Greer family for like four years. As fast as... Does your daughter watch those two dudes yet? Thank God, no. As far, (laughs) as fast as college football moves in terms of how little in the grand scheme of things guys spend in college football, it is still a hundred times slower 
than the speed at which the internet moves relative to whatever kids think is popular. Because when Will Greer was like a senior in high school, his older brother Nash was like the most popular person in the tween universe. And then when he was like a freshman or sophomore, his other brother Hayes like parlayed his own popularity in the tween universe into a place on Dancing with the Stars. And now, as far as I can tell, they're basically like non-entities, but Will Greer is still playing college football. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, it's just pretty hilarious to me, like just the rise and fall of this clan. Um, and now, now all of a sudden he's, he's with the afterthought and now he's like the hope to keep it, to keep it all going, I guess, in the NFL, which isn't out of, uh, and certainly not out of, uh, the imagination. I mean, the guy is a prototype quarterback and he had a heck of a year for West Virginia last year. If he does it again this year, um, he's definitely going to be a potential first round kind of guy just because of his tools. Um, so do, do you think Eli Manning would have been more beloved if he went the, the tween Twitter superstar route? (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Deep deep thoughts. Yeah. Uh, Moving down from West Virginia a little bit, you look uh, at 21, you got LSU, and then Northwestern checks in to 22, um, which is is fantastic. Uh, You look Oregon, Iowa, and Florida round out the top 25. With uh, Oklahoma State, Florida State, Vatech, NC State, Arizona, all sort of in the other in the other receiving votes, if you will, for uh, one person's top twenty-five. It kind of terrifies to me to be me to be slated ahead of Oregon, Iowa, and Florida. Right. Well, I mean, Oregon. I mean, new new head coach. You know, they're replacing. Um, you know. It's the churn at, at head coach. It's the second year they've got a new head coach. They still have no clue. Like they've been you know, running through quarterbacks like crazy. Could it, couldn't Stu have gotten this list out like two weeks earlier and no, gotten it, no. to, <laughs> and gotten it figured... to Kale Millen as quickly as possible? <laughs> no, they, their their quarterback situation is set. It's Justin Herbert. He just has to be healthy. Okay. He. I mean, he's he's legit awesome. He just has to be healthy. Um, and I think the, the other interesting news out of there is that I I wonder if Cristobal ultimately ends up being an upgrade on Willie Taggart. Because I think while Taggart was seen as a, you know, a really good coach, a high-character guy, like somebody who was going to um, you know do well for that program, he seemed a little bit like a fish out of water on the West Coast relative to, to his Florida roots. Sure. And I don't know, Oregon just didn't feel like maybe it's because they were in flux and their QB got injured, but they, it didn't, it didn't feel like the right thing. Cristobal is like, so this dude was with Texas. He was with, um, uh, Miami, like that, like he understands recruiting. He understands flash and he's got all the flash that he needs with Oregon. And apparently he is just tearing things apart on the recruiting trail um, building out just obscene offensive line talent, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, I again, no, nothing against Willie Taggart. I actually think he's a far better fit at Florida State than he was at Oregon and, and probably has a better chance of success there given his ties in, in, in that uh, part of the country. But I think Cristobal is going to be do, able to do a hell of a lot more with his Oregon team uh, than Taggart could have. Iowa twenty four. I mean, I, I 
Iowa is Iowa. You know exactly what to expect from them. Well, Josie Jewell, um, Josh Jackson, and Akram Wadley, uh, all gone. Yeah. That's pretty huge. I mean, I know I just talked about linebackers and running backs being replaceable, but... Um, to, I, I mean, to to me, we talked about this during the draft, but Wadley is going to be a big loss for them. I just... Well, especially against Northwestern. Yeah, he always had his best game against us. He was a... He was a horrible matchup for our uh, our linebackers just oh good riddance we're in iowa city this year right yeah yeah they, they were they were they were at they were in evanston last year so should we pivot to 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 the most interesting the <laughs> thing that separates Stuart mandel Stuart mandel's list from most of the other way too early top 25 lists <laughs> The, the fact that he's, he, yeah, he's got us in there at 22. Um, and you know, we, we talked about, you know, we have talked about and we will continue to talk about, uh, the biggest question going into the season is the health of Clayton Thorson. Um, you know, cause everything else, you know what you, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be replacing some, uh, got to replace Justin Jackson, got to replace Godwin, but it, like, you know who that is. Like, you know who the guys who are going to be coming to step in. Um, but the, the only real question mark is if not Thorson, then who? Right. And I think, yeah. I mean, Stu does a good job of, of laying it out, right? It's like, it's the Thorson question mark, Jeremy Larkin replacing Justin Jackson and our issues at safety. But exactly like you said, right? It's like, J.R. Pace looked pretty sweet. Jared McGee's been around forever. We know exactly what we're getting from him. We're going from great safeties to good safeties. And it's like, yes, depth might be an issue because we knew that those guys were waiting in the wings behind the starters last year. But in terms of the starters as we see them right now, those two guys can step in. I mean, Pace is, is a young gun. That guy's a stud. And McGee's been around a long time and we know what we're getting. And Larkin, the same thing. I mean, he's he's not Justin Jackson, but he looks pretty darn good. And uh, and you feel pretty good about him at the starting position. But right, I to me, my problem is that, and I don't want to shortchange him because he's, you know, obviously he's developed a lot. But Thorson is... Is an and I mean we've seen issues in terms of confidence with Clayton before, um, whether it be you know his accuracy getting a little shaky and and having to kind of jumpstart him to get him going again, or his kind of unwillingness to run or kind of forcing certain kind of of things. He's not a guy prone to make a lot of bad decisions, but he's more someone who will kind of get inside himself a little bit if things aren't going well to the start. He's not, he's the opposite of an irrational confidence guy. He wants to make the right decisions. And if things are not breaking the, the exact way that he wants, he's going to get a little bit more conservative. And those are not things that necessarily lend themselves well to a bad injury. And that's, that's the single biggest thing that I worry about. I'm not worried about turnover. Obviously, I'm not about, I mean, Justin Jackson is quite possibly the best running back Northwestern's ever had. It's a monstrous loss. Um, and, a, but we're, but, you know, exactly. Like, we know what we've got behind him, and Jeremy Larkin's pretty darn good. I'm, I'm less worried. I mean, it, as weird it is to say, 
I feel like Clayton is going to be ready for game one. I don't want to put the cart before the horse. I'm worried about what kind of Clayton we're going to be getting when he steps on the field, mentally as much as physically. So in some ways, I, I, I hear you and I generally agree. I think for me, the biggest problem Clayton had last year was at the beginning of the season when he was trying to, trying to be the hero. He was trying to do too much. And, um, I thought he played much more within himself in the second half of the year and let the game to come to him and, um, you know, lead the team, you know, be aggressive, et cetera, when he needed to be. But, um, just that concept of playing within himself, that certainly is in jeopardy, right? With the injury and we don't, we don't know how comfortable he's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm less concerned about him um, having to dial it back because I do think we've got a lot of solid talent uh, on the field. Uh, to your point about the running back, yeah. To me, Larkin is in some ways an upgrade over J.J. Uh, just in terms of his explosiveness. The wide receiver core, we've been talking about that for a long time. I think I, I think it can only continue to improve. The big question for me on offense is um, Garrett, the loss of Garrett Dickerson. Are we still going to be able to set the edge in a way that doesn't detract from our passing game? Um, he was such a versatile player and, and so, so, so good on running, run blocking situations. And then a, and then a complete mismatch for, uh, for whoever was covering him, whether it was a linebacker, a safety, or a corner. So um, I think, I do, you know, I, go ahead, John. I do feel good in that regard in that, down the stretch, we were able to integrate Cam Green more into the offense. Yeah, that's like, true. Like, he got some reps. Like, he's going to be the guy next year, and I think it's, you know, it's, he's, he doesn't quite have the bulk that Garrett had, um, and he's not, I don't think he's as good of an athlete, but this is the time where I remind you, and if you're listening to the pod, you've been listening for a long time, Cam Green was the best player on the best team in the state of Illinois coming out of high school. And he had to transition to another position, but like he was a pretty blue chip guy and he's, you know, he's a guy who's, he's kind of been pushed out of his, his previous position. He's bulked up a little bit. He's kind of a little bit of a tweener, but the way we use an H back that kind of gives you a lot of options. Well, and he has shown himself to be able to block. Like this is not a, right. Not that Drake Dunsmore couldn't block, but we generally lined him up off the line in the slot as a as a true receiver, and I think I think Green can more naturally replace Dickerson. To your point, um, the O line, you know, we'll see what happens there. But I'm really excited to see how uh, Rashawn Slater develops, how Jared Thomas develops. I think I think we've got some um, some raw material to work with there, and, and then and we are re- we are returning four out of five starters. Yeah. Right. The the one who's really interesting to me, and I texted you guys about it a, a week or two ago, is Jared Thomas. Um, he's a guy, and it's easy to kind of forget with offensive linemen because they tend to sit several years before they play. Um, but Thomas was a really big recruit, but he's a natural guard. And in the grand failed experiment that we picked oh, to death, Jesus. especially Scuzz, but all of us... Um, the failed experiment before we ultimately reverted to the exact same thing, the exact same offensive line rotation we should have had at the start of the season. Thomas was part of that at tackle. And basically what it amounted to was he was, they tried him out at tackle because his natural, because A, we didn't have a heck of a lot at tackle. 
and B, because he was one of the most naturally talented guys on the team. And it didn't work. One, because he was young, and two, because he's a guard. But what you will see is, I believe, a Tommy Doles-type guy at guard uh, once he gets into the rotation for several years. And I think that could be as soon as this year. So uh, hopefully, in between... If you've got, you know, the four guys coming back, like you said, Scuzz, and you plug him in as the five, that's a pretty good unit. Knockwood. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, the only thing I'd say is like Butler and Doles are also both guards. So, you know, um, at the very least, we might have some some flexibility there. I'm not sure who's who's going to take over center. Is that so? So the the uh, the chatter, um, at least uh, this article that the Athletic put out today. Uh, says it's Jared Thomas and Sam Garrick are the uh, are going back and forth at center, okay. and apparently uh, Thomas came out of spring as you know I mean, that, the number one spot. And that was going to be my guess that that's where he might end up. And that's great. And you know, to th- as a throwback to you know one of our favorite players who is now in the NFL uh, but did not finish his career at Northwestern, Ian Park. Ian played center and guard, and. That's kind of Thomas isn't quite the road grader that Park was, but he's a very athletic guard. And I love Ian Park so much. I know, I'm so sad to me. I'm so I just sad. like a giant, just a giant earth mover is exactly what I oh. want at guard. But with that said, like Thomas is the athletic type of a guard. He's a, he's a guy who's going to be able to get out and pull. And uh, if you're getting him on the field at center, like that's great. And I feel pretty good if Butler, Thomas, and Doles is the core. I feel pretty good about that unit, especially on pulling runs, which Larkin is going to do a lot of. Well, and then the the other question is, you know, is is Slater, who's probably the most athletic of your tackles, you know, does he slide in at left tackle, allowing Hans to play on the right side? Uh, I think last year it was reversed, and even I think even to start, you know, didn't they put Hans at guard to start the year last year, and then they moved they, him to they right put tackle. everyone at everywhere. I mean, uh, it was it was last, just like a blender of offensive that, line. That, that, oh, that just that has not aged well. <laughs> I, I, I think no. I think Joel Quenville was setting the offensive line rotation. <laughs> so we'll see, and who knows? You know, maybe some of these freshmen might might uh, make a run as well. But I think between those five guys, and then you've got Nick Urban and Gunnar Vogel as. Uh, you know, somewhat experienced backups um, to uh, to kind of round out like a like a top seven. You got Jesse Myler, uh, Ethan Windicar, who was a redshirt freshman last year, but has got some height. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this how this plays out. But I feel uh, Trey Trey Clock has another year of, of eligibility. So uh, that or wait, does he? Hold yeah, I think yeah, no, back. he does. But he, he and he was he was uh, what the jumbo H back last yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah, he Fat, came in as, as like as like the sixth offensive lineman, uh, effectively, and, and sometimes lined up in the backfield. And um, I guess he had some injuries too. But yeah, but yeah, I, I, I kind of like I, I kind of I think every year we talk ourselves into the O line a little bit, but this year it just feels so much more of a known commodity than than the last certainly two years ago and then even a bit last year given the what the coaches decided to do um defensively i think we feel great about the linebackers we've been talking about the d-line and the recruiting and all the ridiculous talent we have there i'm safety wise john you pointed out like the, the starters sound good and i and and i what's the big question to me is who's going to be the number three or like the nickel defensive back 
because last year a lot of times you'd see McGee come in and and play uh, safety alongside Godwin and allow Cairo to move up into into kind of like a like a rover. Um, fifth defensive back role uh, and attack the line of scrimmage because he was so talented at that. And fingers crossed, if we can get Keith Watkins back, he was so good at that role. I'm guessing maybe you put him on the outside, but um, it just allows for for some flexibility with a guy like a Brian Bullock or uh, Cam, Cameron Ruiz, Bryce Jackson. Like we have a lot of young talent in the defensive backfield and. The five that emerge, um, to me, I'm less concerned about the starters. I'm more concerned about the depth, but especially who's going to play that fifth uh, defensive back role. Apparently, Travis Willick had a good uh, spring as well. Willick and and Jackson uh, both turned heads. So, um, Roderick Campbell's a name that we expected to see last year, and we didn't. Yeah, yeah, and he. I mean, he was hurt. We. I mean. Here's what we remember, the kind of defense we fielded last year. Mandel notes we were a top 20 scoring defense with, like, we were starting, we had a NAIA transfer start half of a game for us as one of our two cornerbacks. That was the situation at cornerback <laughs> for last year. Um, just even being remotely more healthy this season will make a huge difference, and that will that will apply to that fifth, that fifth DB spot uh, as much as anything else. Um, you got Mayo and Hardage on the outside, um, with Watkins probably in there as well at some point, I would imagine. And yeah, Campbell. And, yeah. Cam- yeah. Campbell. I, you know, there's J.R. Pace played, uh, corner a couple times last year as well and, and looked pretty darn good doing it. So I, there's, there's probably a lot of questions in the defensive backfield. And we know that, um, uh, Matt McPherson moved from running backs coach to coach the defensive backfield with the retirement of Jerry Brown. It'll be really interesting to see uh, if if any of those players kind of shift around. Everybody on the roster is just listed as DB except for Hardage. So I think um, with the exception of Hardage and then uh, <laughs> McGee is the only one listed as safety. It's just funny the way they do that sort of stuff. Um, the 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 other three uh three to five slots i think are are really up for grabs uh just briefly want to touch on on the special teams um you know charlie kubander's back uh we have to replace uh hunter nicewander oh guys watkins is not listed on the roster really sorry to, sorry to jump back to that Whoa. i just realized his name does not appear i wonder if he decided to um to call it to graduate yeah i guess we'll huh. have to wait for an official update on that but that's yeah. But I would hope that he, that he comes back. But I mean, it's we'll we'll see. I mean, obviously, it's been such a strong, uh, a long road back for him that we'll probably find out. I guess when we find out. But interesting. But I mean, I I do think right a core of McGee, a a core of you know McGee Pace, who like you said is versatile. Hardage, who again is one of the Big Ten's better cornerbacks. So yeah. um, you know that's it's a considering. What we lost at safety, that's a pretty good core to still have coming back. So, uh, you know, back, back to the punting situation. Um, you know, we have, that's a giant question mark with Nicewander gone. Um, I guess Daniel Kubiak, uh, did, was the only other person who punted at all last year. And then, uh, we've got a walk on redshirt freshman Cody Gronewald, um, who, did the majority of punting work in the spring. Um, so 
question Luke, Luke mark. Luke is still listed as kicker slash punter, but because um, he did all the kicking duties last year, right? Cubander. Like the uh, kickoff duties? Kickoff duties. Oh, um, Otto was the kickoff guy. Oh, yeah. Did Otto graduate? I yes, think so. I think yeah. he, and his th- he and his thunder thighs thunder have thighs. moved on. Ugh. So yeah. sad. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, so I, you're right. I mean, obviously, like, hopefully, you know, we've had, we had some rough years at punter in recent memory. Last year wasn't one of them. Nicewander was very solid for us. So, um, you know, it's the kind of position you don't think a heck of a lot about, but he had a couple of huge punts for us last season. So you hope that, you know, you get a, uh, a quality level replacement. I'm very interested in, you know, Kubander, who was a really big recruit, was really kind of micromanaged by Fitz last season. Um, he, I mean, he's a guy who it seems like the raps were really kept on him for a long period of time. And his overall percentage kicking last year was pretty good, but he also wasn't given a lot of opportunities. Like we were a little risk averse with him. And I would assume now that he's no longer a freshman, um, he's going to be given a lot more opportunities to kick from distance. So we'll see, you know, how that shakes out. You guys know, I love Fitz. Yeah. I don't know that I'm going to miss Fitz coaching the special teams next year. Absolutely not. No. Yeah. Like and um, and I was I was just about to go there. I mean, we now have a dedicated special teams coordinator, Jeff Gannick. Um So, sorry. I mean, <laughs> no, th- that that that's a huge deal. I mean, you know, got love fits you know, much as everyone. Uh but, you know, to have him you know, having his attention split between head coaching and also special teams. I mean, you can't focus on you're a position group if you're trying to coach everyone. So are are you like I'm I'm daring to envision Jelani Roberts returning kickoffs and punts and and no one making him fair catch it every time. <laughs> <laughs> or Vault Vault is back. Here's the thing. I would be perfectly happy for Fitz to coach uh kickoff and punt coverage because the Cats have actually been pretty darn good on, in that in that vein for the last few seasons. I'd be happy for him to coach that side. I just think the other side, it is against his nature to to uh, let the dogs out, if you will. And I'm I'm excited to see what happens here on on the special team side. I I wouldn't be surprised if 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 things are if things look familiar at the get go. But um, I'm excited for the potential for the cats to uh, to wake up a little bit on that side of the ball. Anything else? Uh... You know, did we miss anything here? I mean, you know, well, the so, one thing we kind of skirted past is what happens if Thorson can't go. Right yeah, <laughs> no that that is that's the question. So to that point, um, and this is you know something we also mentioned. The Athletic has a huge piece out on Northwestern football right now, and if you're, um, you know, it's behind the paywall. So if you're a subscriber to the Athletic, we encourage you to check it out. Um, but, but really, you should subscribe to The Athletic. It's a fantastic site. Yeah. Now, I'd be remiss in not tooting our own horn if I didn't say most of what is in here you get from your good friends, the Westlot Pirates. <laughs> but there are a couple things. I know um, uh, our, our boy Scuzz, founder of the Scuzz model, was liking some of the uh, graphs and statistical representations that were in, in their piece here um, in terms of like percent of production returning etc. Um, for me, 
one of the most interesting things is the athletic managed to do um, the how they did it. I have no idea, but they managed to actually pry some somewhat meaningful words out of Pat Fitzgerald as they pertain to Clayton Thorson. Um, Fitz said that he's he is surprised. He didn't think Thorson would be as far along in his recovery as he is right now. So he takes that as a positive sign. Well, um, although he said it in a very negative way. <laughs> right. I mean, well, you he know, said, I thought he was going to be farther behind than he is right now. Right. Farther behind than he is right now, which I don't know what that means. I guess it could just mean Fitz had really low expectations, but it's not the worst thing to say. And I guess they said that Thorson's lifting. He's throwing. He's not doing full things, but let's put it this way. It's way more positive than what's coming out of Indianapolis Colts camp relative to Andrew <laughs> Luck. <laughs> sounds like Thorson is throwing real footballs um, and, uh, and you know, is working out, etc. So, so it's knock wood. He seems to be headed in the right direction. We've talked about this before, but for my money, I still believe if it's not him, it's Aiden Smith. I think when the rubber reads, meets the road, that's the guy who's got the bona fides to be the number two. Um, but they, there's, we've certainly gotten no indications in any regard coming out of camp who it would be. But I still feel like that's who it would be if, if, if it came to that. Yeah, I, we didn't really get any indication out of camp, did we? No, on anything. No, yeah. Not I at mean, all. A- a- Andrew Marty's the another name. T.J. Green, but it's just. I don't know. It just, it feels like, um, I, I'll tell you what the biggest problem is. The biggest problem is that we play Purdue and Duke right out the gate. And as we saw last year, Duke is, I'll say improving or at least like they're dangerous. And at Purdue effing terrifies me, um, with what Jeff Brom is doing there. Not, not so much in terms of what our quarterback will or won't be able to do against their defense, but in terms of like the number of points we probably need to score to win that game. Yeah, and I think that's just one more reason where in my head I'm like, my, I'm worried less from a perspective of it, what if someone else has to start the season? Who would it be? I'm pretty confident Thorson will start the season, but he's going to be taking hits. And I think the real question is, um, if he has to leave for stretches of time, then that's more what I'm thinking about. I think Thorson's, I, I, I expect, and again, things could change, but as of right now, Thorson to be under center at the start of the season. But if he gets banged up at various times or needs to be spelled or needs to come out, that's when I think you're probably going to see someone. And, and I feel like at that point, it's probably going to be Smith. But that's the thing. I mean, I you would like to have a little bit more, something a little bit more clear cut at this point, just because there certainly are scenarios where that guy's going to have to play a huge part of next season. Sammy, who, who wrote this article for the athletic? This was written by, uh, Brian Hamilton. Good work. Good work, Brian. I just, you know, I was just curious given, um, some of the insights into, into the, you know, the quotes that John mentioned earlier that Fitz was able to, to get. So, I, I do I do want to talk a little bit about the schedule, and that, that's something that we uh, haven't really uh, dove deep into. Um, Oofta. Yeah. Yep. At Purdue, home for Duke, home for Akron, home for Michigan. At Michigan State, home for Nebraska, at Rutgers, home for Wisconsin, home for Notre Dame, at Iowa, at Minnesota, and home for Illinois. 
if if you ever visit nusports.com, if you have visited at any point in the last four or five months, you may be aware that Northwestern has the best home schedule in the country. <laughs> I, I feel like that was mentioned. Um, and, of course, that's best from a casual fan wanting to see great teams come to Ryan Field perspective. But from a competitive perspective, it's a little less rosy. Um, yeah, there are not – I mean, Rutgers and Illinois and Akron – um, are those are the three that you hope are gimmies? Everything else, you know, is this is everything else here is tough. I mean, there yeah. are there are certainly no easy stretches on this schedule whatsoever. I mean, you could you could convince me. Well, convince is the wrong word, but this this could swing from like a five win year to a ten win year, and it wouldn't take much to swing it. Yeah, I, I you're I think you're completely right. Um couple things that stand out to me. So the Michigan and and Nebraska games being in Evanston, I think, are big deals. Michigan is just confounding in that we haven't been able to beat them since the Rich Rod era. Like, the fact that we never beat Brady Hoke still, like, keeps me up at night. But early in the year, you don't, you know, that O-line, things still gelling. If they have any injuries coming out of camp, if Patterson's still kind of getting his sea legs, like, maybe there's a shot there. Nebraska game four, you know, you fi- you figured things are locked down by then. Yeah, but yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, who knows? Like if like if Thorson is back and looking good, I you know, I I think we can certainly play with them. Oh um, yeah, for sure. We'll just we'll have to see what happens. I mean, remember game four last year, we almost won at Wisconsin. Um, maybe that's maybe that's selling it a little too hard, but. Uh, the other one, the other one that jumps out. So, hey, Duke at home is a big deal. That's a um, um, dramatically big difference relative to playing Duke on the road, like we did last year. Um, I, I'm, I'm terrified of Purdue, but I'm also not particularly concerned about playing them in West Lafayette. Um, the, the Nebraska game is an interesting one because everyone is drinking the Scott Frost Kool Aid right now in a big way. Oh my God, people love this dude. Um, and rightly so, right? Like the, what he did at at Central Florida was quite remarkable. Um, he is saying all the right things and doing all the right things at Nebraska. They have talent on that roster for sure, but I think I don't think the pendulum's going to swing like like people are talking right now. Um, and getting this game at home, I think, is a great a great deal for Northwestern in this year when Nebraska is going to be super hyped and their fans are going to be ballistic and yada yada. So I. I feel pretty good about, you know, finding six wins on here at Iowa, given some of their losses. Minnesota just does not concern me. Um, maybe I'll feel differently by November 17th of next year, but I just think their quarterback play is a, is a travesty, and they have a long, long, long way to go on that front. We talked about Notre Dame, their losses. Wisconsin feels like a loss. So there's, just, there's a lot of, like, middle-of-the-road games here, but even though, like, like the, four, the four hardest opponents – I guess maybe th- three hardest opponents are at home, and then at Michigan State is a giant question mark per our earlier conversation around yeah. should they be top 10 or top 20. I think, so for me, we've got to win the first three, and that's no by no means a, an easy stretch. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, two tough. and one is very possible coming out of that, and two and one wouldn't even be the worst thing in the world. Um, my hope is that we could get that Purdue win. Um, and... 
an important thing to remember every year, and it was proven last year, of course, is that when Northwestern's got a good team right now, whether we've got a shot at playing for the Big Ten title almost always comes down to whether or not we beat Wisconsin. So you'd hope we could get that Purdue win. The Duke win would be great also. You figure Akron, so a 3-0 or two, a 1-0 start in the Big Ten. Uh, and again, that takes winning on the road against a dangerous Purdue team. But uh, a 2-1 and or 3-0 and start, a split over the next four games. So you'd hope between Michigan, Michigan State, Nebraska, and Rutgers, we go 2-2. Two and two. Ideally, that, that would put us at 5-2 and two and 3-2 and two in the Big Ten playing Wisconsin. Were we to pull out the huge home win against the Badgers, all of a sudden we're 6-2 and two, holding a tiebreaker over the Badgers who must have an easy, a harder schedule next year than they had this past year. Um, it's just regression to the mean. So then you'd think, well, okay, if we then if we're in a position, we have to go on the road, but if we can beat Iowa, Minnesota, and Illinois and the Badgers lose one more game, that's the path. Um, so... Um, I think, you know, that's kind of hopeful yet reasonable. Um, the very optimistic, uh, stretch would say, you know, that somehow we have this amazing run to start the season and then, uh, October 27th through November 3rd have a chance to be an epic eight day stretch in Northwestern football history. Um, that's, that's kind of what, that's, that's the, uh, stars in your eyes scenario. Um, where... Uh, John, I, I just looked up the Wisconsin schedule. Um, while it's not ultra cupcakey, it's, it's pretty frosty. Who's... Western, K- Western Kentucky, New Mexico, and BYU are your non-cons. And the, the cross divisions are Michigan, Penn State, and Rutgers. So Michigan and Penn State, you've got at least, right? So, and again, in this dream scenario we're talking about, Wisconsin would just have to lose to either Michigan or Penn State. Um, and that, that would be enough. And then, you know, you're talking about Nebraska or whatever, but honestly, like no one other than the Badgers, if, if Northwestern's playing well, I believe that, you know, we're better than everyone else. But again, things could go so many ways. Again, I'm, I'm also have this stars in my eyes scenario where, you know, kind of under the, under the radar, we start three and oh, then shock everybody with the big home win against the Badgers get hot. And then, like I said, you get to a point where, for eight magical days from October 27th to November 3rd, the nation's eyes are glued on uh, Ryan Field. So, again, that is that is a little bit of a dream, but uh, but it is possible. So, you know, before before we move on, um, you know, we talked, I think, last week and in, in, in weeks prior about uh, Jarrell Brock, uh, stud four-star running back out of Quincy, Illinois. Um who got the Northwestern offer when Lou Ianni came to town. And now um, he just uh, whittled down his top seven, which was top six until we came in uh, and became top seven. Now he whittled that down to top five, top five, Iowa, Iowa State, Minnesota, Purdue, and Northwestern. It's a very interesting top five. It is. Um, again, like, Illinois, I mean, especially in Illinois, kind of feels like he's trimming dead weight, um, and to a lesser extent, the Hoosiers. But it is. I mean, again, <laughs> I don't want to, I, I don't want to jinx us because I know Scuzz will get all over me. But uh, you have to like our chances relative to the rest of this group. Um, 
Especially considering that it really seems like he was all too happy to make room for Northwestern as soon as Northwestern became a possibility. Um, and uh, I, I feel like he's, he feels very strongly. And on the flip side, knowing that a huge reason he was interested in Iowa State to begin with was Louis Ianni, who is now recruiting him for Northwestern, uh, makes you feel good relative to at least one other school in the top five. So I, I think it's interesting because these are obviously like five of the closest schools to him. Um, Iowa's probably the shortest driving distance technically, but it does seem like Northwestern stands out amongst the crowd. And I know he had an offer originally to Missouri and um, maybe some other schools. Michigan State was another one. So it just it feels like he's looking for something specific. And gosh, I hope it's Louis Ianni. Yeah, that kind of the general consensus thought um you know the, the crystal ball if you will uh, are, are thinking that he's going to Iowa but uh you know there there's still plenty of time and you know he hasn't said when he's making his announcement so um de- definitely got to think the way, we're, we're right there by the way his high school Quincy High School giant effing Q right on their uh, silver helmets it's awesome that that's fantastic um one mention just one other thing real quick um before we talk a little uh, little national here um got this uh, story out of uh inside NU talking about Jim Jim Phillips um USA today uh partnered with athletic director U uh to compile a list of salaries for um most of the top FBS athletic directors and Phillips came out as number 2 um you know the highest paid AD in the Big Ten, second highest paid in the country, uh, just behind Jack Swarbrick, um, who makes double what Phillips makes. Um, you know, it's an, you know, what's an interesting thing about this list to me is <clears throat> in the case of Swarbrick and Phillips, neither of those schools was necessarily compelled to release that information. So part of me thinks that Notre Dame who is paying Swarbrick is making like nearly twice what Phil Swarbrick makes so much more than every, every other athletic director. And I think part of that is Notre Dame being like, we believe that we're the kind of place where our athletic director is in charge of the kind of things where he should be, you know, the highest paid thing. And that's true. I mean, historically Notre Dame AD has been a very high visibility position. Um, Cause he's, but- he's basically conference, the. Uh- conference commissioner of a conference of one, right? Right, exactly. And in the case of Northwestern, I almost feel like it's not just that Phillips is paid so much, it's that Northwestern, I don't think, was, you know, felt like they had to be clandestine about that. I think it's a big pat on the back to Phillips. Yes, we're paying him a lot of money. Look what he's done. And you can't argue with the results. Those guys are both also so tenured in their roles. Like when you look at Ohio State, Michigan, like I think even Penn State as well, like a lot of other schools, the AD has turned over um, in recent times. Um, the other interesting thing, I mean, the other interesting thing about Phillips, frankly, is that I hear a lot of people talking about him as the heir apparent to Jim Delaney as Big Ten commissioner, if that were to occur. Now, I don't know. I don't know how much younger than Delaney Phillips might be and uh, if that would like work out logistically, but there's similar to what you just just described about Swarbuck, there's certainly effort from Northwestern to hang on to this dude. And um, we got to, we got to pay him well as a result. 
And, you know, it's easy to catalog, I mean, things that happened on his watch. I mean, obviously we think football, um, basketball, of course, hiring Chris Collins, making the tournament for the first time. But, you know, women's lacrosse, that happened on his watch. Um, the Drew Hands running the softball program. Yep, right. Um, kind of the revival of Northwestern baseball a couple years ago. Tennis and, has been great. Golf has been great. And then getting the facilities pushed through too. I think, you know, get, uh, you know, folding the, and again, a, a lot of that naturally flows out of the success of the programs and it's hard to know exactly what to put, but I mean, you know, he certainly had a hand in at the very least in everything that led to the lakefront facility and to the renovation of Welsh Ryan and to the increase, you know, the, the whole new practice facility for basketball and volleyball out there. So, I mean, it's, he's, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't have a list of the complete resumes of the achievements of every other athletic director in the country, but um, you don't have to talk me into Phillips being right up at the top. Uh, just, a, you know, a quick uh, run through of, of, Northwestern teams in postseason. Uh, you got lacrosse having won their first two games are now in the uh, NCAA quarterfinals taking on North Carolina. Um, softball made it to the final of the Big Ten tournament, um, before dropping to Minnesota, but made the NCAA tournament, uh, going down to Athens, Georgia in their, in that regional, um, with, uh, Harvard and was it UCLA also in there, I believe. You've got, um, tennis in the second round of the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, round of 32 at this point. Uh, golf, both men's and women's golf made the NCAA tournament. Interesting note, um, I saw today, uh, Northwestern is the only school to have both men's and women's golf teams in the NCAA, in their respective NCAA tournaments. So that, that's pretty cool. <coughs> the main thing I just want to focus on is, how somehow Northwestern lacrosse has suddenly turned into like Loyola Marymount heading into like the tournament. Oh, like 20, we, we beat Richmond 24, 18 and we beat Towson 21, 17. Um, and this is a team that I think we scored 21 goals once the entire season up until this point, um, uh, up until the NCAA tournament. And now it's just like a total free for all. So I think it's not too much of a stretch given that, um, We've given up nearly, or I think we've given up about 19 goals a game over our last four games. Now, granted, two of those were Maryland and Penn State, um, but it is, it's a shootout factory. I mean, the, not to put too broad a point on it, but it's basically like Selena Lasota is going to score more goals than you are. And somehow we've been able to make that happen so far. Well, it, it is interesting. And you wonder what kind of tactical changes have been made um i don't understand lacrosse well enough to to diagnose any of that but lasota is scoring at a crazy pace sheila nestlebush is also scoring at a crazy pace and that does seem like a dramatic departure from nu of the past you wonder if coming off of the maryland game and then that penn state loss in the big 10 tournament they just decided hey we got to try something different um let's see how this goes and who knows maybe they've got a different plan in place for for north carolina they they this was going to be my final thought but the big problem in North Carolina is Marie McCool, their um, superstar uh, player who, who leads their team and is just a dynamic threat. So, well, uh, that game happens, what, Saturday, I believe, this weekend? So uh, I believe so, yes. So that'll be um, that'll be a fun one to tune into and see if the Cats can make another run to the Final Four in lacrosse. 
Uh, real quick before we go, um, got kind of need to mention uh, a little bit of gambling. <laughs> and I, I don't want to go too deep into this because, you know, there's, you know, we could spend another hour talking about uh, the ramifications of uh, the Supreme Court ruling this past week. But, um, you know, suffice to say, you know, just kind of nutshell it here. Now, basically, gambling on sports has much more of a potential to be legal nationwide. Every state has the uh, opportunity. They can legalize gambling on sports if the state wants to. So, um, you know, up to this point, you could only legally gamble on uh, sports in Nevada. Um, with this, I, I believe New Jersey and Delaware are trying to get up and running on legalized sports gambling as quickly as possible. But um, th- this is a really huge deal uh, for sports in general. I mean, um, it- it's always been odd the love-hate relationship that sports has had with gambling. Like, gambling has increased uh, attention onto sports, unlike almost anything else. And yet, it's has been kind of reviled at the same time. It's like, no, we can't do gam, we can't like talk about gambling, but yet it's a huge driving force. I mean, fantasy football is sort of the closest thing to gambling that you know has been legal outside of Nevada. Um, it's it's very hard for me to not go on in uh, America was founded by Puritans and I hate it rant right now. Sure, uh, no, absolutely. Uh, hey, hey, folks! It'd be great if we could start selling alcohol on Sundays because wouldn't we want to make some tax dollars? Good God! Anyways, um, this is yeah, this is really interesting. And I, th- what's crazy to me is when you look at England. And, uh, you know, I lived in New Zealand for a year. Sports gambling was extremely legal there. My cousin would go make a bet every time the All Blacks played. He'd be like, oh, yeah, I bet on this dude to score a first try and uh, these, you know, one of these other four dudes to score. And it was just it was just part of the culture, part of the things that you did. It is something that gets talked about so often in the U.S. You look at the NCAA basketball tournament and all the office pools and stuff like like it's crazy that gambling in this country is on sports has been illegal until now. It's literally insane uh, when you think about how intermixed it is with our culture. And I think that some of the podcasts that I've listened to have just been talking about the eyeballs and the attention that this is going to bring to things like Thursday night football and you know niche sports that are that are available on a Tuesday or Wednesday night when there's nothing major happening. Um, it's just really interesting. And what's What's especially crazy to me is when you look at – now, I get the NCAA has got some historical issues around uh, point shaving and game fixing and those sorts of things. I feel like a lot of that has been, uh, has been I don't know, regulated or figured out. It, 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 it just doesn't seem to be as much of a problem anymore. Um, there's a lot of algorithms you can use now, like international tennis tournaments um, and betting on some of these really obscure games in the first couple rounds have been something that, uh, of a of a story the last few years. And there's just there's just a lot of algorithms and, and mechanisms that you can use to um, to ferret that out and, and prevent those things from happening. Like like betting sites when they see you know crazy action happening on one side of a uh, one side of a matchup that doesn't make sense, they'll shut that stuff down. So. Um, there's a lot of, of checks and balances that maybe didn't exist years ago, but outside of the NCAA, which which I understand just like 
you know, gets nauseous and vomits when they see anything that might be controversial. The NFL not being like super supportive of this is preposterous to me. Um, it's been, it's been major league baseball and the NBA that, that have really been pushing this perspective. And the fact that the NFL doesn't realize where their bread is buttered and that this is frankly, the answer to so many of their problems with ratings and, and oversaturation of, of, uh, uh, television and, and po- terrible games on Monday nights. Like this, this is potentially a panacea for all that. So I don't know, just be really interesting to see how this plays out how and where it rolls out. Uh, Sam, I think you mentioned New Jersey and Delaware. Surely there are going to be other states right on the heels. Uh, I think Mississippi is a state that has already legalized sports gambling. Um, I, I bet you can't buy alcohol four days a week in Mississippi, but uh, I guess you can gamble on uh, uh, on the teams there now. One thing I'm, I'm actually really interested to see is how this advances how we watch games. Like what sort of uh, new things will the networks have out when everyone is and everyone's looking at the possibility of like play by play gambling. Like, will this next play be a run or a pass? Um, stuff like that, which what if it's an RPO? Oh, my head just exploded. <laughs> and so I, did Chris Collinsworth's. <laughs> sure I, did. But I mean, like those new innovations will, will come from legalized gambling. I, I just, I'm picturing Brent Musburger, like, like he was sitting, he was sitting, sitting giddily at like a cabin in Montana or something being like, ha 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 ha, I got out right before the Me Too movement, woohoo, and then God's like, hang on. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Poor, I, holy I've, moly. I've got news for you, buddy. Uh, and then tells him that that gambling has been made illegal. I mean, Brent, with the exception of Al Michaels, was there a bigger proponent of alluding to gambling in sports when he wasn't allowed to officially talk about gambling in sports? I mean, I wouldn't say with the exception of Michaels. I would I would put Brent over yeah. Al, and that's and like look what he's done since he's retired. He's like moved to Vegas and you know runs a sports gambling uh, site. Right, and now you know what's interesting is. He may be able to spin this into gold because you're going to see now, right, so many – I mean this all has to sort itself out and everything. But you're going to see you know, all of your top bets and your bovadas and blah, blah, blah. Well, now you're going to have – that's going to be open season. You know, I talk about a growth industry, right? All these different people. So I could totally see someone snapping up Musburger to create a new gambling whatever. Or maybe you know he's going to have one himself. It will be interesting to see. Well, the thing is now it's going to be about the data and the algorithms and um, buying the insight. Like Dr. Saturday has been a, a, a institution for a long time and that like Dr. Saturday just, you know, made a boatload of money because there are going to be so many people, more people tuning in to, to his handicapping picks and, and, and paying for that. Um, who knows, guys? Maybe I'll retire from the podcast when the SCUS model starts making money. <laughs> but uh, I think like – Musburger, unless he's really good at handicapping and and starts selling his insights, to me that's the that's kind of the big cottage industry that's going to pop up now. It's it's less now about getting access to a site where you can bet, and more about getting access to insider information to uh, uh, to allow yourself to bet. I think you believing that 
the like you believing that the scuzz models access to sports betting will help you is kind of like in terminator when they fire when cyberdyne systems create skynet because they believe skynet's going to help them i think this will lead, this will end up with the scuzz model as our overlord is is what i'm trying to say i think the scuzz model is you don't, just don't let it become self-aware scuzz it it might be too late <laughs> never i don't know <laughs> never uh, well, before we devolve into um, the judgment day that is forthcoming, <laughs> let's go ahead and uh, continue our search for the Swoley Grail. So, uh, so my final thought tonight literally just popped up on my television screen. Uh, I've got I've got the the Golden Knights Winnipeg series happening over here on uh, to my left, and they just brought up a shot of Bryce Harper, who I guess might be a Vegas native. I don't know, is, but is a Vegas native is a Vegas native. Talking hey man, about him hey and Chris Bryant both talking about how much he loves the team and how like he never gets nervous for anything except watching the Golden Knights. They show his bat. He's got like a like a Golden Knights logo on the on the nub of his bat. This just created an international incident incident in uh, our nation's capital where their local hockey team very well could meet up with Las Vegas in the cup final. And uh, if Bryce Harper, Harper wasn't reviled already by, uh, by people, I know he's, I know like a lot of people in Washington love him, but um, my God, he just created an international incident. International. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, hyperbole. Sure. Sorry. All right. No problem. No problem. I've been, I've been drinking, uh, do and proper a New England style ale from uh, from Rivertown, a, a local brewery here. So uh, I'm 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 do a little hyperbole at this moment. You're fine, <laughs> bud. You are absolutely fine. Speaking of hyperbole, uh, for my final thought, uh, allow me to channel Rex the, Rex Ryan um, because I was looking at the women's lacrosse bracket and I saw that uh, in the in the final eight. Seeds one, two, three, four, five, and six have all advanced, but not seven, which was Towson. So allow me to say, uh, you already know what I'm going to say. Top six seeds advance, and the bleeping Wildcats. <laughs> uh, for my final thought, I want to bring it back to uh, back to the hockey game. Um, you know, you, you're looking at this, you know, Vegas versus Winnipeg. And I, I think a lot of people were worried about, or a lot of people who are high brass of NBC, um, were worried about the potential ratings. I mean, how many people are, you know, going to be watching Winnipeg versus this expansion team? And as it turns out, this is the highest rated Western Conference final so far that has not included the Chicago Blackhawks. So that, that's just super exciting. And it's been, uh, you know, it's been fun, fun hockey. Uh, I haven't been able to, to watch while we record. Um, but, you know, three to two in the third period, um, sounds like it's getting a little chippy a little bit here and there. And, uh, but, Go Vegas. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. And then on the other side, you got, you know, Washington and Tampa. The road team has won every game in that series. Um, 
And I, yeah, I was go- I was gonna say, um, for, as far as the NFL, the NHL is concerned, it's great that Winnipeg and Vegas is getting those ratings. But the NHL's bread is buttered by what happens on the other side of the draw. <laughs> they desperately need the Caps to win that series. Um, but if but if the Capitals I don't, I don't know. Do- I mean, of of the four teams playing, the only team that has ever won a cup is Tampa. I think I think people are. I don't think anybody really hates any of these teams. I think some people hate Ovechkin and and Washington as a result. Some people certainly hate Tom Wilson on that team. But I think there's kind of like broad, interesting appeal in that. I mean, Tampa being the one Cup winner, I think uh, people might root against them. But the the other side of the bracket, be it you know Canada and Winnipeg for the first time in in many many years, or Las Vegas and this crazy story. I, I think there are going to be eyeballs on this. And I just, I want to go back to what you said, Sam, about the ratings and the first time, you know, since the Blackhawks who, you know, obviously became a juggernaut and, and captured the attention of, of Chicago and uh, of this latent fan base that had uh, kind of winnowed away, winnowed away over the years. The other thing that's important to remember about Chicago is that they, they didn't introduce it, but they had success playing an extremely up-tempo, aggressive, um, offensive and skill-minded uh, version of hockey. And what we're seeing this year is is truly a, a, a result of that from, from the legacy of, of that Blackhawks team. And I, I don't want to give them too much credit because there are plenty of other teams that have, that have played upscale and often, uh, up-tempo up and with, a, with an offensive tilt over the years, but Chicago had the talent to really, to really demonstrate how it could work. If you, if you didn't stack the bottom part of your roster with bruisers and fighters and goons and what you see when Vegas, the moment a Vegas player gets a hold of the puck. And frankly, Winnipeg did this in the previous series against Nashville. The moment they get the puck, they are immediately racing up ice, passing to the open man, whoever it is, there is no hesitation and they are playing like their balls are on fire and that is partly what makes it so much fun to watch. And even in the final, regardless of who the opponent is, either one of these teams from the West is going to continue playing that way. And it is just so much fun to watch. And you think about like those New Jersey Devil teams that sucked the life out of the game uh, for seven years and won three cups over that time period in, in the, the late 90s and early 2000s. Like This is the polar opposite of that. And it is hockey coming into its own. It's interesting because I feel like in the NBA, a similar thing is is happening in some ways with with what you see in Golden State and, and Houston, et cetera. But um, it's just it, it's so much. It's partially why it's so much fun to watch and why people are drawn to this right now. And we're seeing it come through in the ratings. It's just it's so much fun, and you know, I, I know a lot of Chicago people tuned out with the Blackhawks being. Uh, as bad as they were this year, but man, missing out on some really, really good hockey here. So with that, we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. Uh, head to our website, westlawpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. Uh, find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter, at Westlaw Pirates. You can call our voicemail line, 847-231-2287. That's 847-231-CATS. And email the show, westlawpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. And look for us in the west lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skazbo, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.